let's, why don't we have, we have three chapters and forgive me, more blood than we've had in almost the rest of the book. Um, not counting the Philistine uh, 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 temple cr- falling, but this is actual stab him with a sword kind of blood. It's pretty gross, and I'll try and get through it with respect, but with some speed, um, and get to the almost lighthearted ending, um, if I may. So, Judges 19 and 20 and 21, confusion and depravity continues. We're going to find out about here one more outrage in Israel. Uh, this time, an entire city in the tribe of Benjamin uh, becomes involved in a, a cruel gang rape, uh, which ends with the, the death of the woman involved. Um, and the incident escalates into a war that all but annihilates one of the tribes of Israel. No children, no women, 600 men. That's what's left of that tribe at the end of chapter 21, uh, chapter 20. So they're all, almost entirely wiped out. Um, and uh, it gives us some more background into the gruesome situation in the, really in the tribe of Benjamin, just before Saul comes on the scene and becomes king. So, um, does that also illustrate something of why Saul was so hostile to David and others? Um, I haven't thought that one through yet. So, chapter 19, an outrage in Benjamin. So, uh, uh, in those days when Israel had no king, a Levite staying in a remote part of the hill country of Ephraim took a concubine for himself from Bethlehem in Judah. A concubine is not a prostitute. She's a secondary wife. So if you remember that Solomon had, let me think, 700 royal wives and 300 concubines, Remember that Jacob had two wives and two concubines? Who were the two wives of Jacob? Leah Leah and Rachel. And the two concubines, do you remember their names? Bilhah and Zilpah. They were the two concubines. Um, So sort of secondary wives, extra wives. And what the difference was? They're referred to in Leviticus as rival wives. Um... They were forbidden every bit as much as additional wives were. They were it was against God's law, um, forbidden by the Sixth Commandment, but a great many Old Testament patriarchs and ordinary folks and patriarch wannabes, did I just say that? Yeah. Um, they took multiple wives, um, really to be like the pagan nations around them. The more we live among the pagans, the more we can begin to look like them, to act like them if we're not careful. What does Peter say we should do? Live such good lives among the pagans that they give glory to God because of you. But that's not what happens if you're not careful. Um, so, And once a guy is, falls into the sin of polygamy, he's got contracts now for this sin. So he's stuck between two sins. He can't divorce one of them and he can't 
he can't stay as he is and please God. You know, sometimes a guy sins himself into an impossible corner. So, all right, to continue with verse 2 there, but this concubine was unfaithful to him. Huh. And she left him and went back to her father's house in Bethlehem in Judah. Kind of, yeah. Yeah. Why did she agree to the marriage in the first place? Well, after she had been there four months, her husband followed her down to persuade her to come back. He had his servant with him and two donkeys, so she brought him into her father's house, and when her father saw him, he gladly welcomed him. I thought you took this girl off my hands. I'm glad you're back. I don't know what his real thoughts were, but, but he's glad to see the guy. So they're in Bethlehem. His father-in-law, the girl's father, urged him to stay, and he stayed with him for three days. They ate, they drank, he spent the nights there. On the fourth day, they got up early in the morning and prepared to go, but the girl's father said to his son-in-law, oh, eat something to keep up your strength, and after that, you can go. He sounds like my mother-in-law. Oh, before you go, why don't you have supper with us? Because, Mom, you don't make supper until 9 p.m., and we have a seven-hour drive ahead of us. Uh, you know, that kind of thing. And then we pile in the car, and what does my mother-in-law say? Oh, can you get out so we can take a picture? You know, hey, kid, you know what, you want, you want some cookies? You want to use the bathroom before you go? You know, it's, it's like she's drawing us back into the house constantly. And is it because she's antagonistic toward us? No. No, she's guilty of an overabundance of hospitality. All right. So the two of them sat down and ate and drank together. Then the girl's father said to the man, Oh, please stay tonight and enjoy yourself. Okay, day four comes and goes. The man got up to go, but his father-in-law persuaded him, so he stayed and spent the night there again. He got up early in the morning of the fifth day to leave, but the girl's father said to him, Oh, please, build up your strength. So they waited until late afternoon, and the two of them ate together. Of course, it's not just a case, is it, of opening the fridge? You know, if they want to make a meal, they have to go out and kill an animal, skin it, dress it, season it, get the breading just right you know, roasted or whatever they're going to do. Or uh, uh, what does, what, what, do, what do you, sometimes you soak it. What's that called? Marinate, you know, or whatever, and, and, and make it go and so forth. And they waited until late afternoon and the two of them ate together. The man got up to go along with his concubine and his servant when his father-in-law, the girl's father, said to him, look, the day has drawn to a close. Spend the night here. What a, what's the eagle song? You can check out any time you like, but you can never leave. <laughs> it's just, so the day is ending. Spend the night, enjoy yourself. Then tomorrow you can get up early for your journey and return home. But, but, but I really think he's only guilty of over-enthusiastic hospitality. That's all. But the man was unwilling to stay another night, so he set out and went toward Jebus, that is Jerusalem, with his two saddled donkeys and his concubine with him. There is a textual question here in verse 10. 
uh, in ancient times, in fact, until halfway through 1 Samuel, this city of Jebus was known as Jebus. Uh, what's the author doing telling us it's also Jerusalem? Why would he do that? Well, he might do it, in this case, purely for geographical reasons. Um, you know, oh, reader, you might, know where, you might not know where this was. And so the author, who might, you know, this, this book might not have been written at this exact moment, but this might have been written a little bit later, say, around the time that David conquered Jerusalem, that they stuck this in here um, to let us know that this was geographically. Um, and this also helps us figure out how far the distances are. Some of you have been here at St. Paul's long enough to have heard me a couple times at Christmas tell you how far Bethlehem was from Jerusalem? Do you know my illustration? Aaron? It's from our sanctuary to MVL. That's the distance from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. Okay? Assuming that between Bethlehem and Jerusalem, Highway 14 is open. Okay? So you have to assume that. But that's, it's five miles, right? That's, that's five miles on your odometer. Now, a couple miles beyond MVL is what? Cortland, which in our text corresponds to Gibeah. The, wow, that's really loud. Nice song, though, Barb. It's okay. So that's uh, Gibeah, uh, which is going to be in our account also. So, two saddle donkeys, concubine, when they were near Jebus, and the day was almost gone, the servant said to his master, please, why don't we stop at the city of the Jebusites and spend the night? Oh, we've gone five miles, and you want to stop? Um, so, they, so anyway, they, so they, they go past MVL, and they keep on going toward Cortland. Okay, his master said to him, no, we will not stop at any foreign city whose people are not Israelites. We will go on to Gibeah. And he added, come, let's try to reach Gibeah or Ramah and spend the night in one of those places. So both of them just a couple of miles north of, uh, of, um, of uh, Jerusalem there. They continued on and the sun was setting as they neared Gibeah in Benjamin. So maybe, maybe two more miles. How long does it take somebody in good physical shape to walk two miles? 45 minutes. 45 minutes. Or or sooner. Okay. I do it in 45 Really? Okay. Uh, I know a man who takes a good hour to walk two miles when he tries to do it every night in the cemetery to keep in shape. But that's, uh, that's his business, I suppose. But, and he's huffing and puffing at the end of that, too. But there, it, it's amazing how many, uh, there are actually hills at our cemetery that are you know, you've got to navigate. If you go down to the soldier's rest, it's, you're either going to stay there with the deer or you're going <laughs> to climb that thing and get back up there. Okay. All right. At last, as the sun set, an old man... Oh, I didn't finish the verse, did I? They stopped uh, uh, to spend the night there in Gibeah. He went in and sat down in the city square. City square, what part of town? Middle of town, Right? But no one took them into their home for the night. When they were in Bethlehem, what was the, quote, sin of the, of the father-in-law? 
an overabundance of hospitality. And now we have, forgive the word, a dearth of hospitality. We go from too much hospitality to none at all. And we've gone two miles. No, no, seven or eight miles. So, uh, but nobody will take them in. And at last, as the sun set, um, an old man came in from his work in the field. How long does it take the sun to go down? Depends on where it is, right? Depending on. Did you learn this ever in your life? I learned it once upon a time that that the, uh, the number of hours till sunset is the number of hands at arm's length from, from, the, from the horizon. You count them up. That's how many hours till sunset. That the sun takes an hour to go from there to there at arm's length. Because typically the, the, uh, a person with a smaller hand than me will also have a shorter arm than me. So actually, proportionally, that's a, that's a human being's... Um, uh, way of telling that kind of time. Um, remember that when you're lost at sea and you've got to figure out latitude and longitude and stuff. More about that later. I just watched what's it called? a castaway a little while ago. So yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, uh, so he's from the hill country of Ephraim, but he was living in Gibeah. The people there were Benjamites, little hint there. When he looked up and saw the traveler in the city square, the old man asked, where are you going? Where did you come from? So the people in Gibeah, just two miles or so north of Jerusalem, are Benjamites. Uh, now, uh, in, in terms of the rest of the history of Israel, that actually tells us something important. Jerusalem, David's choice for his capital city, is not part of Judah and not part of Benjamin. It's its own little thing. Jerusalem, and it corresponds in our nation exactly to what city? Washington, D.C. Not part of Maryland, although if you drive north out of D.C., you're in Maryland. Not part of Virginia, although if you drive south out of D.C., you're in, and you successfully cross the interstate, you're in Virginia, you know, and so forth, because the interstate circles D.C., actually. Um, and, uh, but as you take the trains in, you go from one state into the district and so forth. Um, and same was true of, of, of Jerusalem. If you, if you leave the vicinity of Jerusalem, you're in a different tribe. Um, and this guy is from Benjamin. He wants to know where they're from. He answered him, we're going from Bethlehem and Judah, to a remote place in the hill country of Ephraim where I live. I went to Bethlehem in Judah, and now I'm going to the house of the Lord. That sentence doesn't appear to be truthful, but I'm going to leave it alone, okay? Nothing else in the text comes back to it, but it's not really what he was doing. Was he doing this to make himself sound more, more pious or something? I'm not sure. So... Anyway, no one has taken me into his home. We have straw and feed for the donkeys, and I have bread and wine for me, my concubine and the servant with us. There's nothing we lack. So he's, I have all our food and stuff. Look, we got a cooler. We just need a roof over our heads, sir. And shalom lecha, peace to you, said the old man. Let me take care of everything you need. Only don't spend the night in the square. What would have been wrong with spending the night in the city square? Well, we're going to find out. So he brought him into his house and fed his donkeys. 
After they washed their feet, they ate and drank. Um, when I was a goat herd, we also had horses. And if you took them out riding, you're, you get hot and sweaty and everything. What's the first thing you do when you ride back with the horses? Rub down the horses. Give the horses a drink. Give the horses a little bit of feed. You take care of the horses. I mean, even, the, even in John Wayne movies, they ride you know, for hours and hours and hours. They get off the horses and he orders the, all of his soldiers, you, you, 20 minutes, you walk your horses. Now, you know, let them cool down, then rub them down, then brush them, feed them, water them, and then you can take care of yourself. But horses first. So donkeys first. And you notice, he brought him into his house and fed his donkeys. Are those, they both happen in the house? Or are probably the donkeys out back? I'm not really sure, but I don't know. I kind of like to think of the donkeys as like coming right in, but I don't know. I don't know. Maybe they just had a, you know, hitching post there. After they washed their feet, they ate and drank. While they were enjoying themselves, wicked men of the city. I, I, uh, uh, th this term is actually, um, I can't find it on my, on my handout. Maybe I didn't put it on. But it's um, sons of unworthiness is the actual Hebrew there. Or the literal of, of what the Hebrew, sons of unworthiness. So, wicked men of the city surrounded the house and began hurling themselves violently against the door. So, some translations will say something like knocked or pounded on the door. But I'm pretty sure this wasn't a penny, penny, penny. But the, 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 the Hebrew verb form is this reciprocal back and forth, hit pa'el, so that's why I have hurling themselves violently against the door. They shouted to the old man who was the owner of the house, bring out the man who came to your house so we can have sex with him. It is Sodom and Gomorrah all over again, except it's worse. Who were the people in Sodom and Gomorrah? What was, what was their nation, their nationality, their race? They were... Sodomites, they were Canaanites. Who are these guys? They're from Benjamin. They're from one of our own tribes. They've lived there so long, you can't tell the difference between them and the people that God killed in Sodom uh, 700 years ago. Uh, it's, it's, it's terrible, um, these guys. Bring them out so we can have sex with them. And so not only are they, are, they, are they gang rapists, but they're homosexual gang rapists, right? By the way, the men of Sodom also were. Um, do I have that on your handout, maybe? Uh, um, oh, we're at the top of page two already? That can't be, yeah. Old Testament homosexual sins seem always to be violent, involving gang rape. What was destroyed in Sodom and Gomorrah was continued later in other places, including here at Gibeah. Um, so, uh, uh, just the wicked of the wickedest. The owner of the house went out and said to them, please don't do this evil thing, my friends. The man is my guest. Don't commit this vile outrage. He seems like a great guy so far. Well, one more verse. 
Look, here's my virgin daughter and this man's concubine. I'll bring them out to you. You can abuse them and do whatever you want to them, but don't commit this disgraceful thing against this man. This guy has, uh, he has a distorted, perverted, sinful sense of the, the ancient rule of hospitality. You are hospitable to a stranger at whatever expense it is. Um, but he's willing to throw his own little girl and this guy's concubine out into the street. Um, but maybe, I don't know. I'll, I'll just throw this out there. Is it possible that he thought they, they want they want to have sex with the guy, so if I offer the girls, they'll just wander away, you know, not knowing what to do, not caring, unattracted, and so forth. Um, uh, well, it, that's not what happens. The men would not listen to him, so the man seized his concubine and sent her outside to them. They raped her and abused her all night until the morning was coming, and at the first light of dawn, they let her go. Then at dawn, the woman stumbled back and collapsed at the doorway of the man's house where her master was, just as it was getting light. Um, so I, I was thinking there, there are almost too many sins here to count. But uh, let's just try. Okay, let's go back to the servant a, a town ago, did not recognize the danger of a pagan city and thought only of his tired feet, the guy who wanted to go to Jebus. In the end, might they have been better off going to the Jebusite city? I don't know. That was kind of a dice roll, right? And so it was probably wise to avoid, but I don't know. The concubine is really caught in a downward spiral that began with, remember, she was unfaithful to her husband at the beginning of all of this, and now she's just in a spiral. It's like a drain emptying in the tub. It, there's just no way out of this for her. The concubine's father was thrilled that his daughter would be involved in a polygamous marriage, and despite his, excuse the term, indefatigable hospitality, he bore the responsibility for her marriage. He could have said, no, you're not going to marry this guy. The Levite was not the best husband in the world. He's the one who sent her out. Um, his coldness and brusqueness have only just peeked out behind his, I'm the victim here, veneer, as he shoves his wife into a gang rape. Um, but he will show just how cold he is in another verse or two. He hasn't reached the climax of his, uh, not necessarily sinfulness, but to our way of thinking, his coldness, his grossness, his... Ugh. What kind of a man was this? Ness. The old man is every bit as hospitable as the concubine's father, but he too offers the girl his virgin daughter to these sons of worthlessness. Oh, there it is. I quoted it there. And then there are the sons of wicked, of worthlessness. They, this was, as Marcia said, Sodom all over again. But just as World War II was more horrifying even than World War I, as if that would have been possible, so also Sodom too beats out Sodom one, because the men of this gay rape gang were all Israelites, men of Gibeah from the tribe of Benjamin, and Israel is the entire nation of Israel is not going to be happy with them. 
even as we read this, mentally, we kind of feel the clouds gathering over the city of Gibeah. It's not going to go well for them at all. Gibeah is done for, okay? And that's not even a spoiler alert. It's going to be much worse than that. But Gibeah is, there's no hope for Gibeah. Gibeah is done. The command of God against homosexuality is clear. In Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20, do not lie with a man as one lies with a woman. That is detestable. And this command is part of God's um, uh, moral law, the natural law. Remember that the, the law of Moses is divided into three pieces. So you have moral law, like the Ten Commandments, but then you have ordinary civic duty things. That's the civil law. If your ox gores a guy, you're supposed to put the ox down. You know, that just happened. Was it yesterday? Heard it on the news? Was it an ox, actually? Who, or, a, or a bull or something? Gored, they had to pull the... They had to, what do they say on the radio? They had to euthanize the bull. And uh, just and in fact, just to get to the guy, to give him uh, assistance and so forth. And then besides the moral law and the civil law, you have the law of the tabernacle, which they called the what? Excellent. The ceremonial law. Dealing with all of the, uh, everything from the recipe for anointing oil. It's actually given. And to the, the, the way you're supposed to cut up an animal and, and, and who's responsible for making sure that the critter up on the altar doesn't fall off during the burning process. Do you, anybody know whose job that was? It's specified. That was the job of the high priest. No sacrifice is to fall off the altar. The high priest is to make sure little, little wedges and things like that he makes sure that the, that, the, that the meat stays on the altar to burn. That was his, one of his most important roles. And he was responsible, too, for making sure that the fire didn't go out. So all kinds of things. Um, if it were a ship, uh, and forgive me, but I, I kind of know Navy better than I know other things. If it were a ship, the high priest has a lot of the, of the responsibilities and duties that you would expect from a ship's executive or first officer. That's the kind of stuff that, 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 that a first officer would do aboard a ship. And so who's really in command at the tabernacle? Who's the captain? God. Yeah, the high priest is just the number one human. Um, uh, it's a little bit different. Uh, many captains call their first officers number one. Yeah. By the way, and that command about homosexuality, that's a natural command. It's part of the moral law, not just part of the Mosaic law. It stands even for New Testament people uh, uh, in the same list as stealing and so forth. And just as stealing, yeah, forbidden by the covenant law, still forbidden in the New Testament as moral law. And as Paul says more than once, neither homosexual offenders nor thieves will inherit the kingdom of God. In the new NIV, the 2011 NIV, they tra- instead of homosexual offenders, do you know what they have? Men who have sex with men. It's, it's probably one of my favorite translation updates, a positive one that the new NIV has. Excellent that they have that. 
if you get into a, a position in a, in a, in a, if somebody has a question with you about this and they want to know where in the New Testament does God forbid homosexuality and so forth, it's, I, sometimes people are ask, ask me for lists and things. And the easiest one to come up with is that it's Romans 1. Romans 1 has such a list. There are other places. 1 Corinthians 6 is one of them, but there, and there are others. Um, but, um, and all, Jesus talks about you know, sexual immorality and things all the time. But yeah, please. Yeah. How do pastors and other more liberal church bodies get by? You know, the, the homosexual oh, what a great question that is. That is, a, that, is a, that is an excellent question. And if you didn't hear it, it was how do pastors from other church bodies, often more liberal church bodies, how they get away with these verses. And uh, what I have heard said out loud is that, oh, God wants people to have loving relationships. And so these, these, these things are, see it says offenders. And so that must be an unloving relationship. They put too much of an emphasis on English words chosen by a translator when really it just says men who, the kind of men who have sex with men as the offense. And so, and there, and there tends to be some bullying from those pastors uh, so that they, they put down members who want to really talk about it and ask about it. And... Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, I have an in-law who is ELCA, yeah. and they had for a short time uh, a, a gay pastor, um, and it, it's it's an interesting quality of that congregation that they were so uncomfortable with him that they preferred having a woman pastor instead. And so that's the direction they went. They actually asked him to. They used to have a little pastor. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, let's continue with the chapter here. Uh, when her master got up in the morning, he opened the door of the house and went out uh, to set out on his journey. There lay the woman, his concubine, fallen at the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. And he said to her, get up, let's go. You know, well, she's napping after her, I don't know, what, what did he think it was? After her night of fun? Uh, there was no answer. So the man put her body on his donkey and set out for home. So we do know that she's dead at this point. Um, but I think the NIV probably has, he put her on his donkey, but it should be clearer than that. Um, so when he arrived at his house, he took a knife and taking firm hold of her corpse, he cut his concubine into 12 parts, one part after another, and then sent her into each of the tribes of Israel. Remember what the guy did for a living? What was he? He was a Levite. He cut up things for a living. That's what Levites did. They cut up the sacrifices or they helped people to do it. So he was used to butchery. That's what he does here. And no, I'm not going to offer my idea of what the 12 parts were. Okay, I've been asked that in classes before, but ain't going to do it. Um, 
except to say maybe it was just her ten fingers and the rest of her, you know, or whatever. And I don't know what it was. But anyway, uh, everyone who saw this said, can you imagine the, the delivery guys? The poor FedEx guy for, for Isaacar? What is this? Um, everyone who saw it said nothing like this has ever happened or has been seen since the day the Israelites came up out of the land of Egypt until now. Think about this. Take counsel about it. Respond. What are we going to do? Anything that far. This message to the tribes was grisly, gory, ghastly, gruesome, grotesque. You've been listening to Invisible Church, the Bible study podcast from St. Paul's Lutheran Church, New Wall, Minnesota.